29 AD, there was one about to change the world. Fully man, fully God, Jesus. Next to him was a friend who witnessed everything. He saw early miracles. He sat at his right hand. His own eyes saw Jesus transfigured. The very heart of Christ was poured out to him, and he was there at the cross on the day history was altered. These are the words and the story of John. Guys, it's an honor and a privilege to be here with you tonight. Uh, thanks for, for giving this opportunity. Um, some of you may have been here a couple months ago uh, when I got a chance to be up here the first time. And that night, I shared a story about my dad. Um, tonight, I'm going to start off with a little story about my mom. Uh, the good thing is I got two parents, so I've been up here twice, and uh, you won't have to hear about my parents anymore after tonight, all right? Uh, in 2004, my mom was diagnosed with melanoma cancer in her, in her shin. A few weeks later, she had surgery. The surgeons were pretty confident that they had gotten all the cancer, but they indicated the next two years would be really critical. A little over a year later, my mom's cancer was back. She was told she had stage four cancer and likely had less than five years to live. She had another surgery and began treatments in Des Moines about an uh, hour from where my mom and dad live in Iowa. The doctors in Des Moines uh, did surgery a couple times and gave her some treatments, but within a couple of years, they had kind of reached the end of the road, and they basically told my mom, we don't know what to do anymore. Uh, not ready to give up her fight, my mom called the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and by God's grace, within a couple of weeks, she was able to have an appointment up at Mayo. The cancer was waging war against my mom's physical body, but her spirit, her resolve, and her passion for life were not going to give up easily. My mom started on a trial drug treatment to fight the melanoma. That worked for a while, and then it didn't. So she started a second trial drug, and it worked for a while, and then it didn't. And then a third one. There was a period of time for several years where my mom and dad were making a seven-hour round trip up and back, up to Mayo and back, every three-week period of time. Along the way, my mom developed two types of breast cancer, and she had two lumpectomies. The cancer also spread to her brain, and she's had three gamma knife procedures. Four years ago at Mayo, she had emergency spine surgery because two of her vertebrae were compressing together and the doctors feared that if they didn't do surgery, she would be paralyzed. Here's my mom, two weeks ago, wedding dress shopping with my oldest niece, <laughs> Rebecca. Her younger sister on the right here in that picture is Sarah. Sarah's a senior in high school this year. When my mom was first diagnosed with cancer, Sarah was two months old. My mom has fought against cancer, fought, in ways, fought for her life in ways that I would have never imagined 18 years ago. I often say my mom is the toughest, most determined person I know. Her incredible toughness has allowed her to see four grandchildren grow up into young adults. She's seen countless ball games, witnessed three high school graduations, two college graduations, a wedding last summer, and if the Lord allows, she will witness a fourth high school graduation this spring and a second wedding this fall. We've been blessed to take some incredibly meaningful trips, and those are memories that can never be taken away from us. I don't share all of this with you for sympathy, nor do I share it to glorify my mom. 
I know that cancer has likely touched almost every one of us in this room and your stories may be different. My family has been incredibly blessed by God and obviously he has been gracious to us and answered prayers beyond what we could have hoped or imagined. I share this story with you tonight because it is a picture of a choice between life and death. Countless times along the way, my mom could have easily given up. Candidly, I don't know how she chose not to. I truly think I probably would have. Daily, the voice in her head has been, I want to live. I want to see my grandkids grow up and I'm willing to do whatever I have to to make that happen. No matter how strong of a fighter my mom is, there's going to come a day, and candidly, it may not be that far off, where my mom is going to die. Her body is going to give out, and she's going to lose the earthly battle with cancer. Brothers, I pray that you don't have to go through what my mom has gone through, but regardless of your path ahead, you too are going to die. The good news is that there is one who has the power to give life, both now and for eternity. And as we look at this passage in John 5 tonight, that's what it's about. It's about Jesus giving life. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, you are the giver of life, and we see that tonight in this story. Lord, I'm so thankful for the, the words that you give us that we can look to these words and that we can put our faith and our trust in you. But there's lessons in here for us tonight too, Lord, that we need to apply to our lives. And so God, I pray that you would just, I pray that your words would come through right now. And I pray that we could just spend some moments learning about you and drawing closer to you and that we could just come to know you better during this time together. Thank you for my brothers, Lord. And I just pray that you'd be with us here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Tonight's lesson begins with the miraculous healing of an invalid on the Sabbath. Jesus is in Jerusalem and he goes to this area by the pool of Bethesda. Now we know today that underneath this pool there was this subterranean stream, uh, stream that used to cause the waters to stir up. But in that time there was a belief that an angel of the Lord would come down and cause the water to stir. And the first one who was in the pool when, that, when the water stirred up would be healed. Because of this, a multitude of sick people, it says, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, would surround the pool, waiting for their chance to get in the water when it was stirred. Jesus comes into this area, and he notices a man. He notices one man laying there for a long time, and he asks him if he wants to be healed. Men, this first thing caught my eye tonight, and I don't want us to miss it. Jesus has done the same thing for each one of us tonight. There are 8 billion spiritually sick, broken, helpless, sinful people in the world today. And amongst those 8 billion people, he has specifically looked at each one of us and said, do you want to be healed? Do you understand the consequences of this amazing truth? God chose you. He picked you. He loves you. He didn't have to, and we didn't do anything to deserve this. But for some reason, he chose to come to us, and he's asking us, do you want to be healed? As I've thought about this question, the thing that keeps popping up in my mind is, do I live in the realization of how lucky I am? For me, 
the answer to that question too often is no. What I choose to do, instead of rejoicing in the fact that Jesus has offered to heal me, I like to wallow in a pity of comparison, self-defeat, disappointment, and fear. Maybe you guys are like me in that way. What about you? How does the fact that God chose you, that he came and he said to you that, do you want to be healed? How does that impact you? How does that change the way that you interact with the people around you because of the hope that you have in Jesus? The next thing we see is that Jesus questions this man about, do you want to be healed? And we see the man's initial response. Jesus comes up to him and he says, he looks at him and he says, do you want to be healed? Now, this seems like a silly question to us, doesn't it? Jesus doesn't ask silly questions. Jesus may have wanted the man to see his own helplessness, or he may have wanted to make sure that the man does, in fact, want to be healed. The man had been an invalid for 38 years, that we're told. By this time, he may well have lost all hope in ever being healed, and he may have been resigned to his position in society. He may have even been content to have others take care of him. But we see in his response, that's not the case. He answered Jesus immediately. He didn't roll over and ignore him. He said, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps over me. Hearing his response, Jesus tells him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And we are told at once the man was healed. He took up his bed and he walked. There are three things that I want us to see in this story tonight. There's a lot more, uh, but I want to point out three things. First, the man was looking to be healed, but he was looking in the wrong place. Some of you tonight are hurting too. You need healing, but you too are looking in the wrong place. You may feel empty. You may feel lonely. You may be exhausted from trying to be somebody that you're not meant to be. You may be depressed or you may be full of shame. Whatever the case, you are looking for healing. All the things that the world tells you are gonna make you feel better. Maybe it's a bottle. Maybe it's a drug. Maybe it's the arms of another woman who's not your wife. Maybe it's more money in your bank account. Maybe it's a computer screen with images that you think will make you feel better and forget whatever it is that you're really feeling inside. You're like the invalid and the multitude of sick people who are looking for a pool of magical healing rather than looking to Jesus. Jesus is here tonight and he's coming to you and he's asking you, do you want to be healed? What's going to be your response? Are you going to keep looking for that magical pool? Or are you going to admit you're helpless and accept the healing that Jesus provides? Second, notice that the man had to act. Jesus told him to get up, but he didn't bend down and pick up his head and like lift him up off the ground. Jesus just said, get up. Now, this is not easy for this man. Think about it. He's been there for 38 years laying there. Think about the mental and physical determination that he had to say when Jesus said to get up, to even try to get up. 
Men, God is offering each one of us healing tonight, but we need to participate. We need to act. Now, don't mishear me, all right? I'm not saying that we can save ourselves. Ephesians 2.8 is clear, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. We are saved by grace. But just like the man had to try to get up, we must strive for obedience and holiness as well. Are you struggling with lust and pornography? Get in a conqueror's group. Delete apps on your phone. Get off social media. Do you struggle with envy and jealousy? Go serve those who are less fortunate than you. Or maybe start praising the one person that you're the most jealous of. Do you struggle with wanting more money? Start giving it away. Start letting go and start blessing others. Do you have some emotional stuff that is really holding you back? Get in a heart group. You guys have heard some stories about what happens in heart groups. Come get in a heart group. Start talking about it in your discretion groups or with other men, men sitting right beside you, guys here that wanna help. I, I know it's not easy, guys. Trust me, I know. I struggle with this stuff too. So again, I'm not saying this is easy. I don't have this figured out either. But think about how hard it was for that invalid to even try to get up after not being able to walk for 38 years. And then think about what it must have been like to walk. That is what Jesus is offering us tonight. We gotta make some effort, but believe me guys, the effort is worth it because of what Jesus promises us on the other side. So what action step do you need to take this week to move toward the healing that God is offering you? What action has the Holy Spirit been convicting you of that you have yet to respond to? Third, we see that the invalid man had to move. Notice that after he gets up, Jesus tells him, take up his bed and walk. Why does he tell him to do this? Tells him to walk because he doesn't want the man to be tempted to come back to the same place. And why would he do that? Why would the man go back to the same place? He does it for the same reason that you and I do it, right? We go back to what is comfortable. We go back to what feels good. We go back to what's easy. We go back to what we know. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Jesus asked if you wanted to be healed. You said yes, you got up, you acted, but now you keep going back to the life that you knew before you knew Jesus. You go back to your old friends and your old activities. You go back to your former way of life. I had this problem when I got married. I got married at 41. I know you're probably shocked that I'm older than that now, but I am. I got married at 41, so I had to be single for a long time. That meant every time I went out, every single woman had the potential, the lucky potential in my mind. <laughs> come on, guys, come on. I believed it, right? Every single woman had the lucky potential to be the future Mrs. Pothoven. A glance at the hand, this hand, to see if there was a wedding, wedding ring, and if not, hey, you never know when God was gonna work that magical moment. Now, as Bill can attest, 
I was far from being a player, so don't believe that I ever actually went up and talked to any of these ladies. But it didn't stop me from looking and wondering, right? The hard part was when I met Jenny and we got married, that old habit, that one lingered for a while. I'm not proud of that, guys, and I'm not saying it was right, but it was an old way of life that I went back to and it hurt my wife a lot. And that's exactly why Jesus says to this man, he says to each one of us here tonight, walk. Walk away from whatever keeps you broken and the sin that holds you back and pursue something better. So what or who do you need to walk away from tonight that is keeping you from the abundant life that Jesus is offering Immediately after the man is healed, he is met with opposition from the Jewish religious leaders for carrying his mat on the Sabbath. The Jewish leaders at that time had imposed 39 laws pertaining to carrying a load on the Sabbath. And depending on the situation, the potential penalty was being stoned. Given those circumstances, you can see why the man quickly responds uh, responds by saying, the man who healed me, he told me to pick up his mat and walk. The religious leaders wanted to know who it was that healed him, but the man doesn't know. Later that day, Jesus finds him at the temple and he says to him, he says, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man then proceeds to tell the religious leaders who it is that healed him. They confront Jesus about healing on the Sabbath and he responds by saying that God, his father, is working And thus he is working as well. Guys, the issue of the Sabbath is still highly contested in the Christian church today. And there was some good conversation in our group, and I'm guessing in most everybody's group, about the Sabbath tonight. There are a variety of opinions of what it means to honor the Sabbath and how we should uphold the fourth commandment. I'm not going to give you a lecture on what you should or shouldn't do on Sunday. That's way above my pay grade, which isn't much. But, but here is what I know. Here's what I know. The religious leaders of that day had wrongly interpreted the command to honor the Sabbath. They had been legalistic and added 39 categories of unpermitted work on the Sabbath. We need to be careful not to fall into that same trap of legalism today, especially with new believers Think about it from the perspective of this man. He's just been healed and he is walking for the first time in 38 years. Can you imagine the joy on this guy? I mean, can you imagine how happy and excited he is? And boom, instantly what happens? Immediately he says, hey, you're breaking the Sabbath. Are you kidding me? You get the sense that these religious leaders, if they had been at the wedding feast in Cana, they would have said to Jesus, hey, turn that wine back into water. (laughs) Guys, I think we are guilty of turning wine into water far more than we care to admit. We take the miracles of God, the conversions of men's soul, and then we immediately want to tell them how they have to live their lives through our own interpretation of what is right is right and wrong. 
Imagine our brother James gets up here last week, gives this amazing, if you weren't here, I mean, go back and watch it, right? This amazingly powerful testimony. And then immediately a bunch of us run up to him afterwards and start telling him all the things he needs to change in his life. Not our role, guys, not our role. I do a little workout called P90X30. Are you laughing? That was him? Okay, all right, I do. It's a 30-minute video by Tony Horton. One of the ones I do uh, most frequently is CVX. And you got this little weight, you do a bunch of exercises and with a little bit of weight. At one point in the video, Tony says, it's the weight that's doing the work. It's the weight that's doing the work. Guys, let me encourage us to let the Holy Spirit do the work of convicting a man, ourselves included, of what changes need to be made in his life. Now, each situation is unique, and please hear me, there are definitely times we need to challenge and confront a brother about his sin. I'm not saying we shouldn't. I'm just saying be careful of what our motive is and be careful we are not adding our own standard to what God says in the Bible. Even when our motives are right, legalism tends to lead to hypocrisy, not holiness. Jesus summarized the law in Matthew 22, 37 this way. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Guys, where do you fall on the side of legalism over love? Who are you being legalistic with tonight? And what will you do to change your attitude and actions towards that person this week? In the final two sections of this chapter, Jesus responds to the persecution and confrontation of the religious leaders by making two incredible claims about his equality with God. In verses 18 through 30, he explains his relationship with God the Father, including that Jesus is the one who gives life and executes judgment. I think there is maybe a tendency for the power of these words to be lost on us today. We sit here tonight, and my hope is that most of us believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He does have the same authority of the Father, and he is the only one who can give you and me access to eternal life in heaven. But the magnitude of these verses, the incredible importance of what Jesus says here, cannot be overlooked. Imagine for a moment that you are there. You're hearing these words for the first time. Just like the Pharisees, you know the Old Testament. You know all the prophecies. And you've waited your whole life for the Messiah to, hear, to, to appear. Imagine being in that crowd and hearing Jesus say this. Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in his self. 
guys, we need to understand what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that he is God and he is the only one who can give life. And he's making this claim in front of a bunch of guys, a bunch of Pharisees who were waiting and searching for the Messiah, but they didn't recognize him. In fact, in just a short period of time, these guys that he's making this claim in front of, they're gonna crucify him. These claims are why C.S. Lewis has famously said that Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. Jesus continues to provide proof in his claims to be God by identifying four witnesses of his authority in the last section, verses 31 through 47. Here again, what Jesus is doing is amazing. He knows the law of Moses and the, the, the custom of that time. They said there needed to be at least two witnesses for something to be uh, proven true. So what does he do? He gives them four. The Father, John the Baptist, his miracles, and the scriptures. He's saying, look at these witnesses. I am who I say I am. I am the son of God, and yet you don't believe. Look at the harrowing words of verse 40. Jesus says, and yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Then I pray, if there is anyone in here tonight who is yet to come to Jesus, don't leave without talking to someone. If you need further proof that Jesus is the son of God and that he does give life, talk to my brother James. What he has experienced the last couple of weeks is real. It's true. It proves that what Jesus says is true. I will ask the same question I asked a minute ago. Is Jesus a liar, a lunatic, or is he Lord? He's one of those three. And how you answer that will determine what kind of life you have now and where you will spend eternity. My mom has fought for her life in ways that I can't imagine. I'm grateful that she has had such an incredible desire to live. But I can't help compare her struggle to the offer that Jesus is giving each of us tonight. He's offering to give us eternal life with him in heaven forever. And there is no struggle. There's no cancer treatments. There's no surgeries. We just need to recognize our helplessness. Turn from our sin and say, yes, Jesus, I want to be healed. He's paid the penalty. He's suffered the cost. Bill finished last week saying that Jesus is working in this room to bring healing. Tonight, he is asking, do you want to be healed? The invitation is there. The consequences are clear. What is your response? Let's pray. Father God, thank you. First of all, thank you for coming and choosing each one of us in this room to know you, at least to hear about you, Lord. And if there's a man who doesn't know you yet as his savior, who hasn't said, yes, Jesus, I wanna be healed. God, I pray that you would just work in his heart that he would see the hope and the joy and just the peace that is found in you. And God, I thank you for my brothers and I thank you that you do love us. And thank you, Jesus, for coming to die on the cross to take my sins and all our sins to give us hope of life eternal with you. Lord, we wanna be healed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.